Good morning, Four Corners. Blessing to hear the sounds of all the children scurrying about as they go back there to learn about the Lord. We're thankful for all those who teach here at Four Corners who invest time in studying a lesson and bringing that message to our children so that uh, they can come to know Christ rightly through his word. I have three uh, kids here, so as a dad, I'm so thankful to those of you who've invested in my kids, and, uh, and I know the rest of us as parents feel the same way. Uh, if you would go with me in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Today, coming off of Easter weekend, we move back to our series in Exodus. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been working our way through Exodus a little over a year now, and we are now in chapter 20. We've worked our way up to that point, and we are now in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And we've gotten a lot of these sorts of passages in Exodus, as you've heard me comment before, that are just really well known. Uh, there are some books in the Bible with stories, maybe think of uh, Judges or, or some other books where some of the stories are a little more obscure, not Samson, of course, but some of them uh, maybe you just haven't, you're not familiar with. But even for those who haven't been growing up and haven't grown up in church or aren't familiar with Christianity, uh, the Ten Commandments is one of those passages that you probably at least have read or somewhat familiar with, similarly to the uh, parting of the Red Sea. So we're right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And so far we've looked at three commandments. The first three, Yahweh alone, no idols, and honoring God's name. That's what we've covered up to this point. God's people are to worship Him alone. No substitutes or supplements. And that gave us an opportunity as we thought about that, gave us an opportunity to consider all of the ways that we are tempted toward worshiping false gods. It's really easy for us to think that idolatry or false worship is something that is very much associated with the ancient world as you think about all of those little figurines and statues and drawings and so forth that people would bow down and worship, but we recognize that we do the same thing. Uh, we construct idols in our own minds. Uh, as Calvin said, the, the, the heart is a, a factory of idols. It, it just produces and produces and produces more and more idols. It is what it means to be lost. What it means to be an unbeliever, most fundamentally, is to be constantly in the business of worshiping false gods. And one of the things that I think atheists need to understand is that they too have gods. Uh, some uh, act as though they have risen above religion, as they would see it, the superstition of religion. Uh, there is much superstition in religion, uh, but as they would see it, all religion is superstitious. And as they would understand it, they have risen above all of that and are uh, following the sure guide of reason. But what we know is that inherent in all of that is a rationalism that itself is idolatrous. A belief, an exalted belief in human capability, in the human mind, in our ability to see reality and understand it rightly. So even for the atheists, there are 
many, many gods that are worshipped. The truth is we are all worshippers. And I remember reading uh, in Ted Tripp's book when he talked about this with our children, that as we raise our children, we want to explain to them and help them understand as we discipline them that they are by nature little worshipers. And that their problem is that they worship false gods instead of true gods, and the, the true God. And so behind every one of their sins, behind every one of our sins, is this false Worship This failure, as Romans 1 says, to honor God and give him thanks. So the first commandment deals with that. Yahweh alone, no substitutes or supplements. And we are to worship him according to his word. I think the focus of the second commandment is here. Not creating images of Yahweh or any other deity, for that matter, which is covered under the first commandment. To bow down to and serve them, but to worship Yahweh alone and to worship Yahweh in accordance with his word. To follow what scripture says in how we approach him, in how we speak to him, and how we think about him, relate to him. And as an outworking of our worship covered very clearly in the first and second commandments, As an outworking of our worship of this one true and living God, we are to honor his name. So you see the the logical progression of the commandments. This is not to speak God's name, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, falsely, blasphemously, casually, aimlessly, or we could put there mindlessly, without purpose, frivolously, trivially, And hypocritically. And we do that when we profess the Lord, when we're in our workplace saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I I had a friend who did this when we were teenagers and we'd be out sinning and he would be uh, witnessing to the guy next to him and talking about his, uh, his sure hope in Christ as that he was saved from hell and he would be chasing hell with all of his deeds. This is to bear God's name falsely. It is to be professing him hypocritically. And I think we ought to understand that too is connected with using the name of the Lord in vain, misusing or dishonoring God's name. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, when we misuse or dishonor God's name, we shrink him. Well, I think about this particularly when we just offhandedly do the whole OMG thing. Or when we offhandedly just speak of God in these trivial ways, even playfully, and not honoring and upholding his name. When we do this, we make God small. We make God light. The idea of glory is is heaviness. The Hebrew word for glory is heavy. And God is heavy. And when we use his name wrongly, we make him a light thing, a flippant thing. The name is connected with the essence. The the name conveys the essence, his character, his attributes. And so to misuse God's name is to trample on God's character. It is to shrink God in our minds and among those with whom we speak. And where God shrinks, idols grow. 
where God shrinks in our minds, where God shrinks in our homes, where God shrinks in our small groups, in our church, where he shrinks, idols grow. The proliferation of idolatry is the result necessarily of breaking the third commandment. So the third commandment is so clearly connected to the first two. This morning we come to the fourth commandment. And the title for the sermon this morning is simply the Sabbath day. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. The Sabbath day. And as we've been doing with the Ten Commandments, we'll read uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, but our focus today will be on verses 8 to 11. So this is the Word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me or in my presence. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then our passage for today, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, And made it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be long in the land. That the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox. Or his donkey. Or anything that is your Neighbors, you can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his grace as we seek to understand his word. As we seek to meditate on it and obey it. You know, I was reading recently uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, And I was asking myself, what does it mean to do that? And I think most fundamentally it means to meditate on it and obey it. And so we're going to pray that the Lord, not just to take it in, let it pass through our ears and our our frontal lobes and just keep going, but to meditate on it and obey it. And so let's pray that the Lord would instruct us this morning clearly and that he would work in our 
hearts, that he would work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He would work in us so that we would obey his truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us these verses. We thank you for giving us the Ten Commandments. God, we pray that what is communicated this morning would honor you and that it would find fertile soil in the hearts of your people. Lord, we recognize that uh, attitudes about the Sabbath um, have at times been contentious in Christian history and recognize that there are different ways of coming at this particular command, this, this question, this issue. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through this sermon and through our hearing. And we pray, Father, that we would walk away from this knowing what it is that you would have us to do to praise you and give you thanks. Lord, we ask that you would work obedience into our hearts, that you would help us to love your word and to show that love by meditating on it day and night. Lord, help us to trust uh, that as Psalm 1 says, that uh, in doing so, you will make us fruitful in this life. You will make us like a tree planted by streams of water. Lord, help us to grow in that. And we pray that as we meditate together this morning, that you would indeed accomplish that work among us, making us like that prosperous, fruitful tree for your glory, for your kingdom. We ask that you would work in each of our hearts today, that you would meet us where we are. Father, we are sinful, and Lord, we are broken, and we live in a fallen, broken world. And so we pray, God, that you would minister to each one of our hearts in very precise ways, as we know you do. Keep our focus. Lord, protect us from thoughts about other things. Protect us from worries and even anticipations. Lord, help us to be present here, not just in body, but also in mind. And help us be present here in spirit as we offer our spirit to you. Romans 12, 1 to 2, as we offer ourselves to you now, our consciences laid bare before your watching eyes, and we ask you to speak into us. And Lord, we offer ourselves to you entirely. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've divided the sermon this morning into two parts, and I really wrestled with how to structure uh, the sermon this morning, uh, given the way that this commandment is worded and the uh, issues surrounding this commandment, but this is what I came up with. So I've divided the sermon into these two basic parts. So first, the obligation for Israel, want to deal with that first, and then secondly, the application for us. So uh, the obligation for Israel, we need to understand first what this commandment was saying to those gathered around Mount Sinai, and then understand how we are to appropriate this commandment today in the new covenant, those who are in Jesus Christ. So first, the obligation for Israel. So what is God saying to the Israelites, two to 2.5, I think, million people gathered around this quaking mountain, hearing the word of the Lord as he gives these commands to the entire people? And they hear his voice. They, they do not see a form, but they hear his voice. Now, they've seen a lot. They've seen smoking. They've seen lightning. They've heard 
thundering. They've seen Moses go up and speak with the Lord. They've heard the Lord respond to Moses. And now they are hearing God give these ten words, or these ten commandments. So what is God here saying to Israel? As we look at the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Sinai, what is God commanding Israel to do in the fourth commandment? Well, as we follow the passage, this commandment involves three things. And so uh, we're going to work through each of these. It involves these three commands or these three actions of the Israelites, sanctifying, ceasing, and imitating. So you can write those down if you would like. Subpoints for the first point here, sanctifying, ceasing, and imitating. So first, sanctifying. For that, look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. As we've seen already, holiness is a massive idea in the Bible. It's probably one of the most important ideas in the Bible. Certainly one of the most important, if not the most important. And we see it especially as we look at the history of Israel. And especially in those first five books, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. God is holy. This is fundamental to all truth. It's fundamental to all reality. It's at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect and pure. And he is to be treated as holy in every conceivable way. And I think the third commandment most deals with God's holiness. When we treat God's name uh, in a dishonorable way, we fail to treat him as holy. He is to be treated holy in every way, in how he is regarded, in how he is approached, and in how he is spoken about and spoken to. And this goes back to the very beginning of the Exodus story with Moses at the burning bush. So God strikes that tone of holiness. He shows forth that theme of holiness at the very beginning of this entire Exodus event. So chapter 3, verse 5, at the burning bush, Moses sees the, the bush there burning but not being consumed. And and he approaches, the Lord speaks to him, the angel of the Lord speaks to him out of the bush. And the Lord says to him, do not come near. Do not come near, Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is set apart turf. This is special ground. And then after the Red Sea, as the people are praising Yahweh, they recognize that his place of worship is holy. His dwelling place is holy, just as Moses learned when he approached the burning bush. So chapter 15, verse 13. You have led, these are the people praising God for what he did at the Red Sea. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy Abode. Why is God's abode holy? Well, because he's there. And because God is holy, his people are to be holy or set apart to him for his service, for his glory. When God chooses a people, they are to be set apart unto him. So chapter 19, verse 6, the Lord says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy 
nation. God is holy. His dwelling place is holy. He dwells with his people, among his people, in his people, even in the new covenant, as we'll come to see. And so his people are to be holy. They are to be distinct from the nations of the world, bearing the name of God. So it does not surprise us when the holy God tells his holy people to observe a holy day. Uh, This is not shocking. This is not strange. This is not just some isolated command out of nowhere. It's not in in a vacuum, but it's very much built on what we've been seeing all along as we've walked through Exodus, that God is holy, his dwelling place is holy, his people are holy. So we're not surprised when he establishes a holy day, a day that is set apart from all of the others. But how are the Israelites to keep a day holy. How are they to set it apart from all the others? And that leads to our second point here, and that is ceasing. So first we see sanctifying, that they are to, they are to set something apart. They are to set a day apart. And then we learn how that is to happen. It is by ceasing. Look at verses 9 to 10. Six days you shall labor... And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter. Your male servant or your female servant. Or your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. You shall not do any work. As we've already seen in verse 8. This holy day is called a Sabbath day. And this word Sabbath means stopping or ceasing or resting. It's a stopping day, a ceasing day, a resting day. So this day is to be one of rest, rest from the work that characterizes the other six days of the week. And that is how it is to be kept holy, by moving from the normal pattern of work to an abnormal state of rest. So do you see that? As you move from one day to the next, to the next, to the next, all the days bleed together. And it's the same sort of pattern. And we see that. We wake up in the morning, we go about our routine, then we do it the next day, then we do it the next day. And of course, there's all sorts of pop-ups and spontaneous things that happen, but there is a pattern in place. And by moving from the normal pattern of work to an abnormal state of rest, the people are setting this day apart as holy. It's the mechanism, it's the way that God sanctifies the day among his people. And we have already been introduced to the Sabbath day. Back in chapter 16 with the gathering and preparing of the manna. So this command has already been mentioned before we even get to Mount Sinai. Before the people even get to the mountain to receive God's law, God has already given them the Sabbath command in anticipation of what they're going to get here in the fourth commandment. So let me read that to you back in chapter 16. I'm going to read from verses 22 to 26. You could flip there and follow along if you would like. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a 
day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So the seventh day is to be a Sabbath. The Lord provides double the food on the sixth day so that they do not have to gather on the seventh day. Then it says this, Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. This is amazing because any other day of the week, if they left some of the manna over to the next day, thinking that they'll store up a nice stash, maybe they're not as hungry one day, thinking, but tomorrow I'll have a little extra, I have a little manna feast. Or I just want to make sure that I have food for tomorrow. You know, Yahweh may or may not provide. We'll see. So anything like that is forbidden. And so if they left the manna over until the following day, it would stink and rot and have worms in it. But on the sixth day, the Lord will not only provide enough manna for two days, he will preserve it into the seventh day so that when they wake up on the morning of the seventh day, they have a day's worth and it's not rotting. It's not stinking. I think it probably is as fresh, well, it would have been as fresh as it possibly could be. It goes on to say, Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So the people, we are told here, are to cease from their work. And that goes as... Exodus 20 says that goes for their work animals and it goes for servants and sojourners as well. So it's not just the Israelites themselves, but it's anyone who is dwelling among the people as Israelites. And it's even their oxen and other animals that they used for plowing fields and working. Those are also to receive this day of rest. And, of course, we know what human sin does with God's commands. You can imagine the Israelite, uh, if this latter portion here about the servants and sojourners would not have been mentioned, you could imagine the Israelite saying, well, I won't work today, but my servants and those foreigners over there, they're going to work my field today. So uh, the Israelite's resting and and, and, and doing his obligation while he is employing his servants and sojourners to work out in his Field, the Lord will have none of that. That is not acceptable. The Lord says, All must rest, even the people who are among you at your gates or in your gates. Exodus 23, verse 12 gives a little more information on this that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. And so you see the compassion and the mercy that is embedded here in the Sabbath command to Israel. And we see that with Jesus. The Pharisees, as we read earlier, they had lost all sense of compassion, all sense of mercy. It was all about self-righteous law-keeping. And what Jesus comes along and says is that the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And here we see embedded in it is this notion of mercy, this humanitarian emphasis, this care for people and even for ox, oxen and donkeys. So God has already introduced this commandment to the people. And here he places it in the ten words. So he introduced it already in chapter 16. And here it's placed in the ten commandments. So what makes this so important? 
Let me think about it for a moment. You're reading through the commandments, and we come to this one, and you think, well, why is it, you know, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is not mentioned here uh, with the Sabbath. Of course, we're probably meant to understand all of those encompassed here. But why is it that this particular command, which has already been mentioned, gets mentioned in the ten words of the ten commandments? What warrants its mention here? And the answer comes in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 15. So let me read those verses to you. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, listen to this, above all. That's interesting. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And I think what we're meant to understand as we read this, the, these verses in Exodus 31 is that the Sabbath functions in a specific way as a sign of the covenant between Yahweh and the nation of Israel. It, it is that important because as I understand it, as I think about this, uh, the other nine commandments are reaffirmed and re-mentioned in the New Testament, but this commandment is not. Well, we're not told in the New Testament to, to keep a Sabbath whereas the other nine commandments are. And the way I understand this is kind of like a lockbox. If you imagine the Ten Commandments as a box with a lock on it, it is to say that uh, the Fourth Commandment functions a bit uh, like the lock, like the keyhole. It opens up all the others. And that's the reason why we get this language here of above all. And the reason I say that is because the Fourth Commandment is a sign of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. We know that the Ten Commandments are, are the, the binding agreement between God and his people. That, that's the substance, in a nutshell, of the covenant relationship. And so as I understand it, the Sabbath command functions in this way. It is the binding symbol or sign of the covenant between God and his people that opens up all of the other ten or the other nine commandments. So the Sabbath functions in this specific way. It is a symbol for the nation of their allegiance to Yahweh, of their set-apartness among the nations. Just as God set apart the seventh day at creation with rest, making it holy, so too are the people set apart as holy to the Lord. And that brings us thirdly to imitating so we see that there is, they are to sanctify, they are to cease from their work, and now thirdly, they are to imitate. Look at verse 11. This is a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Lord here grounds it in creation. He goes all the way back to Genesis 2. So, in anticipation of his covenant with Israel, the Lord sanctifies the seventh day at creation. And now in the Exodus, just as he did with the seventh day, so he does with his people. Just as he set apart the seventh day in creation, so too does he set apart his people Israel. And they image this by imitating his resting at the end of the creation week. 
Now, I want to make one small note. That's not what this text is about, but I want to make one small note here. Notice the way that the six days correspond with the normal work week of the Israelites. Now, this is not the be-all and end-all of an argument for six-day creationism, for young earth creationism. But as when I taught through Genesis 1 to 3, I pointed this out. That here, if, if you're thinking about some sort of unspecified eons of time, it doesn't really correspond well with what we find here. Is it, it's concretely these six days and then a seventh. So as I understand it, this passage is, is evidence, part of the evidence, supporting reading the creation account in Genesis 1 as a six 24-hour day creation as God creates the world. So that's first the obligation for Israel. Now we move to the application for us. This is where we begin to think much more specifically. Okay, we understand holiness, we understand Sabbath, we understand rest and what God was doing at Sinai and the fact that he had already given the command in chapter 16. We understand that it is uniquely a sign of the covenant relationship, and as my mind is trying to wrap itself around this, understanding it as a keyhole or a lock that opens up the box of the commandments as a whole. So now, what is the application for us? What do we do? Christians today in the new covenant in Christ, what do we do with the fourth commandment? We've needed to first get the nature, history, and intention of the fourth commandment in view. And what we see is that it is specific to Israel as a sign of the covenant, and yet it goes all the way back to creation. So that's the tension, right? It, it is specific to Israel here at Sinai with respect to the covenant, and yet it goes all the way back to creation in its grounding. And the fact that it is traced back to creation has led some Christians to conclude that the fourth commandment is also binding on us today. That it is universal. It goes all the way back to creation. It has always been binding. It was binding before uh, Moses and Sinai. It was binding during Israel's theocracy. It is binding on Christians today. Some have argued that. In other words, the specific command to rest. And we must remember that the command is a Sabbath command. It is a command to rest. So some have argued that the specific command to rest, one out of seven days a week, is also an obligation for Christians today. And that it is rooted in creation. It is a creation mandate. And that to do otherwise would be to disobey the fourth commandment. Some, like the seven-day Adventists, insist that this must be on Saturday, the actual seventh day, since that was the day God sanctified at creation. He blessed it and made it holy, and so what has changed? It is still Saturday that remains holy and sanctified in creation. Others have recognized that Christians gather on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and that with the resurrection of Christ, the holy day has shifted from Saturday to Sunday. But these believers, called Sabbatarians, and this is a, a, a very 
well-grounded position in the Reformed tradition. These believers, called Sabbatarians, still recognize the need to observe a weekly day of rest. In other words, the command to have a weekly day of rest is binding on the believer. It is still binding, but it is binding for Sundays, not for Saturdays. So I want to briefly look at several texts. So I've I've kind of framed it that way, explained why it is that uh, some view it this way and the way the command is referred to back to creation. But now I want to briefly look at several texts that lead me to believe, and this is my own position as it stands, and one of the things I love about Tom Schreiner, uh, he's a New Testament scholar that I really appreciate uh, and like, is he's really willing to say, I disagree with my old self. <laughs> he, he's really willing to say, my mind has changed on this. I've developed on this. I've come to see this better. And I love that about him because uh, it just shows a certain teachability and humility and the fact that we're never uh, as fully informed as we should be. So I say this where I stand now, what I am convinced of now, or what I am led to believe, is that keeping a weekly day of rest is not binding, per se, on believers today. So I am not a Sabbatarian in that sense. We'll talk about applications in a moment, because that does not mean the fourth commandment is dismissed. It simply means that I, don't, I do not understand, as it stands now, that this is binding on us, that we are to hold one day of rest per week, or we are disobeying the Lord. We are breaking the fourth command. So let me give you a few reasons why I have come to this position myself. First, although God's Sabbath is mentioned at creation, and that is a a weighty point and a weighty argument, there is no Sabbath command before the Exodus. Uh, There simply is, uh, there's no Sabbath command to God's people, to any of the people who are worshiping God. We don't see it with Adam and Eve. We don't see it with Seth. We don't see it in Seth's line to Noah. We don't see it in in Noah's line to Abram. We don't see it in, in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's just not there. There is no Sabbath command before the Exodus. You could say it this way. The line goes straight from creation to the nation. And that leads me to believe that what's going on there is God is anticipating his sanctifying of Israel in his creation. That's how important Israel was. That's how important Israel was to his plan. God is anticipating that. He's foreshadowing that in creation. So the line goes from creation to nation, suggesting that there was no binding command on God's people prior to Exodus 16, To observe a day of rest in the week. Second, the New Testament presents the Sabbath rest as being fulfilled in our life in Christ. And so what we as Christians want to do is we want to go to the New Testament and we want to ask ourselves the question, how does the notion of Sabbath get treated in the New Testament? Because that helps us understand how we are to relate to this commandment and this idea of Sabbath. And the New Testament presents the Sabbath rest as being fulfilled in our life in Christ. So we see this in Matthew Chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Now, by itself, this would be a stretch, but we do read these words. Come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There is a a Sabbath fulfillment. There is a Sabbath actualization that happens by simply being in Christ. To be in Christ is to have come to God and found rest. It's to find rest for our souls, peace with God, rest from all of the striving after our own righteousness in legalistic uh, pursuits of self-righteousness. It is to rest in our souls from the turmoil of a troubled conscience. And now we have a clean conscience and it is to rest in hope in Jesus, no matter what comes our way in this life, as broken as it is. Come to me and rest, Jesus says. And then we find in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, the writer says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And so Hebrews 4 tells us that there is an already not yet dynamic going on with this Sabbath rest. There is a sense in which we are experiencing every moment of every day God's Sabbath rest, and yet there is a sense in which we are striving to enter into that Sabbath rest, which is for those who do not fall away which is for those who are kept by the Lord and who persevere in the faith. So we see this emphasis on rest or Sabbath in Christ. Third, and this is where I think the rubber really meets the road for me. There are New Testament texts that suggest that Sabbath day keeping is no longer in effect in the new covenant. So these texts suggest that Sabbath day keeping is no longer in effect in the new covenant. So let me read you these passages. Luke chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, notice how Paul is going to group these various things together. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, I've read some older Reformed commentators who have argued that here, well, it's not talking about the Sabbath, it's talking about other kinds of Sabbath days. And that's just reaching. That's just reaching. The the most immediate thing that would come to mind when Paul mentions a Sabbath is the Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath. And notice that Sabbath keeping is here related to, it's tied together with food and drink laws and festival laws, new moon laws and Sabbath laws. They're here all blended together. And then listen to what Paul goes on to say. These things, and that includes Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there is a sense, and I don't mean to denigrate the fourth commandment at all. We're going to talk about it in a moment and the the weightiness of it, the application of it for us. But it does mean that in a sense, the Sabbath has shadow status, right? Not substance status, but shadow status. 
As it says here, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one pass judgment on you, I think implied here, if you don't keep a a Sabbath day, a day of rest. That's what Sabbath means. A day of ceasing, a day of rest. Romans chapter 14, verse 5 is also, I think, very pertinent to this question where Paul specifically says, and we talked about this, and I've, I've taught on this before when we were in Genesis 2 and when we were in Romans 14 a little bit, but this is what it says in Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another. So here is Paul writing to Christians in Rome, and there are some among the Christians there who would esteem the seventh day in this context, perhaps, because you're dealing with Jew-Gentile dynamic, as better than another day, while another esteems all days alike. So one person has specific days, and another person just sees all days alike. And then Paul says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He doesn't go from that and say, now you people who esteem all days alike are wrong. He doesn't say that. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So what we are to understand from that is that it is perfectly fine to view all days alike. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all days alike. Not esteeming one day as better than another. Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 to 10 But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, in that specific situation, they, unlike Romans 14, they are observing days and months and seasons and years, thinking that that is connected to their salvation. That without doing so, they would not be saved. That's not the case in Romans 14 because Paul leaves it up to the freedom of the consciences there, but not in Galatians 4. He is reprimanding them for these observances. Let me give a final reason for me. The reason I am convinced on this question is the final reason. The societal difference between a a theocracy in Israel and Christians spread out all over the world. So imagine this. In ancient Israel, when the Sabbath command is given, you have a theocracy. The entire people are are set apart as a people who, who keep this command. And of course, we know the Jews were dispersed in the diaspora and they're all over the place, but they congregate into these uh, these places, these Jewish segments of, of town, and, and they keep these laws. The situation is different in the first century as the gospel goes out to all people in the Greco-Roman world. What is a slave living in the first century to tell his Roman master? I'm sorry, I cannot work today. I must cease from all labor. It is the Christian Sabbath. There is a fundamental difference between a a theocratic situation and a situation like you find in the first century where the gospel is going out to peoples all over and peoples in different families, in different communities are being saved and converted, slaves being converted. It's also important for us to recognize that uh, Sabbatarian understanding flourishes most when the society and the government embraces the gospel. So you see this, for example, in 17th century England with the Puritans. I love the Puritans. 
but that is a, a very, very much a theocratically oriented society. You see this in the South, in America, very much. Not a theocracy, but you see very much a wedding together of the culture and even the laws with Christianity. First century, the Greco-Roman Empire was not this way at all. There were no theocratic elements at all to society. So this is not the binding reason. For me, the reason that I've come to the conclusion I have on this question is because of the New Testament text I just read to you, most fundamentally. So, if a day of Sabbath rest is not binding on Christians, then what force does this command have in our lives. And by the way, let me just say this to you. You recognize that everything I've been saying is true if you do any work on Sunday, right? So even if this strikes you as strange, you already recognize a shift if you do any work whatsoever on Sunday, right? So you you can't be selective. You can't be like a a one-tenth Sabbath keeper. You can't be like like a 30% Sabbatarian. It's it's really an all or nothing if you're meant to understand this is a creation mandate. It's universal, and it comes through into the new covenant. So just understand the logical problem there. So if a Sabbath, a day of Sabbath rest is not binding on Christians, then what force does this command have in our lives? So don't hear me saying it has no force. The sermon's not over. We're not, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. We're We're not going to end yet because this commandment does have an impact on our lives. It does have import for our lives. It does apply to our lives, I think, in many ways. But I think we just need to clear the air in understanding that when we come to New Testament text, it's not a one-to-one transfer. We're not meant to understand it in that way, I don't think. So how do we apply it without ignoring it? And I want to suggest five ways. I'll list them briefly and then explain them. The Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Rest, the Lord's Creation, and the Lord's Thanks. So let me just go through those briefly. This this is the way I understand uh, appropriation of the fourth commandment as a Christian. So first... The Lord's Day. It is very interesting that in the New Testament, while you do not get commands or imperatives regarding the holding up of a particular day, you do get this emphasis on a day. In the New Testament, the emphasis shifts from uh, the, the Saturday to the Sunday. And the reason for that is Christ was raised on the first day of the week. And that makes sense, right, with creation. New creation, uh, creation began on the first day of the week when God said, let there be light. And new creation began on the first day of the week. And in a sense, that's why we are in the Sabbath rest now. New creation began on the first day of the week with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So throughout the New Testament, you have sprinkled this emphasis on the first day or the Lord's Day. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. And that is the day that Christians gather to worship. Though we should keep in mind that Christians initially gathered every day, right? So Acts 2.42, they're gathering in the temple courts every single day, right? And and you you think, are they doing something special on Sunday? Probably not. They're gathering every day. 
But it is the case that throughout the New Testament, what is described is an emphasis on Sunday as the day when Christians gather for worship. And we know that gathering regularly with God's people is binding on Christians as we read in Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, as it is connected to, well, let me read it here. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to gathering in the first day of the week the money that you have set aside to give. That was the normal way that Christians worked is they, they gathered together, which is binding on Christians to gather together, and Christians would give on that day. They would worship on that day. They would hear God's word taught on that day. They would sing his praises together on that day. And that day was the Lord's day or Sunday. So we are meant to see the Lord's Day as an outworking, I think, of the fourth command, though it's not a one-to-one correspondence called the Christian Sabbath, right? I don't understand the Lord's Day to be the Christian Sabbath. I know sometimes we use that language. A Sabbatarian would understand that uh, for Old Testament Israel, there was uh, the seventh-day Sabbath, and now there's the first-day Sabbath for Christians, So that's the Lord's Day. Secondly, the Lord's Supper. This is another way that uh, the command applies to us. If we are to understand the Sabbath day as a sign of the covenant between Israel as a nation and Yahweh, then I think we are to see a correspondence here with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for us a sign of the covenant that we have in Christ's blood. And it's interesting, as you tie all of these together, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day with the Lord's people gathered together. So all of these things are interconnected. But the Lord's Supper, understood to be the sign of the covenant in Christ's blood. So I think those are two ways that the Sabbath command applies to us. Thirdly, the Lord's rest. We are living a Sabbath day. And, you know, sometimes we don't think that way. But picture what happens in Israel, in the Old Testament, on that seventh day, as they cease from all work, devoting themselves exclusively to the Lord. Now we understand Romans 12, 1 to 2, presenting ourselves to the Lord as as a sacrifice, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind, walking in God's perfect and good will day by day. This is what it means to be in a Sabbath. We are in an ongoing, continual Sabbath rest before the Lord. And so I think we are to give thanks to God. We are to praise Him. We are to live as though this is true. And not compartmentalizing our lives. You know, some of the ways that people have thought about the Sabbath, they they sort of do whatever they want on the other days of the week. But then there's somehow this sort of special holy day where they're going to refrain from from doing this activity or that activity. Maybe it's a, a sinful activity that you think you have license to do the other six days. But on Sunday, because that's the Christian Sabbath, you're not going to do those. No, we are before the Lord always. We are in an ongoing devotion and Sabbath unto Yahweh. Fourthly, the Lord's creation. 
we see from the Sabbath that it is a gift to man. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, there Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't as though a God made this command, and then he made man and said, there you go. It's all about the command. No, it's God has made the Sabbath to serve man. He's made the Sabbath to love on mankind. He's made the Sabbath as a gracious gift as we see it there at Sinai and as we see Jesus referring to it. We also understand as we apply the fourth commandment that it is wise to take time for rest. We see a pattern. And I think we are to take note of that pattern. It's the same as we think about tithing in some respects. As we come to this question, we see a pattern. It is a biblical pattern. It is a helpful pattern as we think about what does it mean to work and rest in our lives unto the Lord. Is there this binding law on us that there's one day a week and it's this particular day that we cannot work? Or is God giving us a principle in creation? Is he giving us a pattern as we think about the fourth commandment, that it is wise for us to take rest. But also notice six days of work. Notice the proportion. Some of us in our hyper-retirement culture and in our hyper-luxury culture, we act like they do in France. I was amazed when I lived in Paris for a month. I, I was amazed at just how French people think about work. It's insane. And, and how different it is from the, the American ethos. But what we understand is that the American ethos is going the way of Europe. And we all probably think, oh, that sounds great. That's, that's wonderful and nice. More free time. More time to be on my phone or dedicate to my hobbies or watch TV or whatever. What we understand is that man was not made to just sit around in leisure all the time. The proportion is six to one packed into the fourth commandment. So the fourth commandment in that sense gives us principles regarding the need for rest, but it also gives us principles regarding the need for hard work. And we see this popping up in the New Testament, the emphasis on work. Finally, the Lord's thanks. The Lord's thanks. And here I go back to Romans chapter 14, Verses 5 to 7, by saying the Lord's thanks, I mean thanks to the Lord. Listen to how Paul argues. So we've got different views represented in this church, right? Could go around and, and probably lots of nuances. And maybe some 30 percenters, you know, some 10 percenters, maybe some 90 percenters, maybe some 100 percenters. Someone told me recently that uh, when they grew up that their family would make food on um, Saturday night and put it in the refrigerator and then Sunday, Sunday they would get it out and wouldn't even heat it up. That it would just be understood that you have to eat your food cold. I forget, I think it was in our small group, someone told me that. So that would be 100 percenter. So we've got, we've got all these different ways on the spectrum of how uh, some in here would say that the view that I espoused this morning would be your view. And others would say, oh no, that makes me uncomfortable. And others would say on the other extreme, no, 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 this, that, that was dead wrong what he just said up there. I, I'm a 100 percenter. And if you are a 100 percenter, you're going to think what I just said is dead wrong. And feel free to come and talk to me about it. But understand, as I said before, this is where I am now. So let me read this. This is the logic of our one anothering in light of our differences. Romans 14, verses 5 to 7. 
One person esteems one day as better than another. You might be that person. While another esteems all days alike. You might be that person. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Get it right before God as you come to Scripture and you in your own conscience before the Lord are sure on your position. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And as he's drawing those, as he's grouping those together, we could say that the one who does not honor, uh, does not esteem one day as better than another, gives thanks to God for the rest we enjoy in Jesus all the time. And then those who would see it would give thanks on that particular day. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. And guess what? None of us lives to each other either. We live to the Lord. We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. So here's my point. This is not arguing with or judging one another. As we think about how this plays out in your life. If you're looking at someone, they are mowing their grass on Sunday. Maybe someone going out to lunch on Sunday, putting their food in their microwave. Others who would say, no, I'm not going to do that on Sunday. I'm not going to do that because in my understanding, this is a universal mandate. It's rooted in creation. And even though it is not clearly commanded in the New Testament, and I think those verses can be understood differently, I believe that this is binding now on Sunday. Whether you have that view or not, what will it do to argue over it? What will it produce to judge one another over it? Let us move from the fourth commandment to the ground of Romans 14 and let us live with one another before the Lord, giving thanks to God whatever position we have regarding the Sabbath day, offering ourselves to the Lord in however we regard the days of the week. That's what we do as Christians. There are a whole host of things that we will disagree on. And I think we are to understand that this is one that has been specifically dealt with. For example, in Romans 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us to see what is in Scripture, Lord. We thank you that you guide us and, and you correct us. And you help us, Lord, to, to, to see where our viewpoints have uh, been off-center or have not been faithful to your word. And, and Lord, I, I just pray that for all of us, that we would be fully convinced in our own minds. And if our view on this matter needs to change for me or for anyone else in this congregation, Lord, that you would work in each of our hearts to the end that we would worship before you rightly, that we would be yours Lord, I pray that you protect us all from pride and, and judgment against one another. Help us to heed the words of the apostle as we think about what it means to appropriate the fourth commandment. Lord, I pray that if anything has been said uh, here during this sermon, Lord, that is uh, unbecoming of your truth, that does not honor you, that that, that would be corrected uh, in due course, Lord, and that you would be honored in each of our hearts and our minds. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.